0: Hey everyone, it's Luke. I'm not going to wax philosophical here, just going to jump right back into the conversation with North Idaho journalist and editor, Zach Hagedon. After last week's amuse-bouche, our little grazing platter of all the different shades of conservatism in Idaho, we dig a little deeper this half, making a meal out of a single legislative district, state legislative district one, which contains Sandpoint, whose political dynamics and personalities are, in Zach's mind, A microcosm for the three-way civil war, actually maybe multi-way civil war happening in Idaho right now, and maybe even nationally among Republicans. Zach makes the point very clearly that conservatism in Idaho is not the same as conservatism nationally, and it never has been. It's got its own flavor, and I think that's true. There's definite ideological exchange happening though. And the question we tease out is whether the meat of this new shift originates in Idaho and merely has some national seasoning. You know, the ideas of Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene hitting like emerald. Bam, 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 bam. And you take some green onion and you go bam. You take some ethnonationalism and you go bam. Adding a little America first flavor to what is a fundamentally Idahoan chuck roast of ideology. Or whether it's the other way around, a meatloaf of national level grievance slathered in like a a huckleberry reduction or something. I don't know. Is that that sufficiently? uh, I don't know. Are are there seasonings that are endemic to Idaho? I don't even know. Although I am kind of craving a huckleberry meatloaf now. Is that weird? Zach clearly thinks it's the first option that there's more unique to Idaho than not. And obviously he's the expert. So I'm going to defer to him, but I'm still kind of on the fence though, whether Idaho's politicians are directly invoking QAnon or not, there does seem to be an awful lot of rhetorical and issue overlap. An unexpected part of the conversation for me, and I found this fascinating, was realizing that the place we're talking about was actually maybe not a stronghold for radicals and progressives, but it was definitely a stronghold for moderate meat-and-potatoes Democrats as recently as the mid-1990s, powered by North Idaho's strong labor unions. The way Zach discusses the switch... From reliably say moderate or even a little left-tilting to so red that Democrats have to register as Republicans just to have their vote meet anything because the primary is the whole game, the Republican primary is the whole game, the general is a foregone conclusion. Isn't just a story of conservative inmigration and white flight. It's also a story of how national trade policies passed under a Democratic president took the legs out from under North Idaho Democrats, their union allies. And made it harder for them to hold back that tide. So yes, kids, we're going to talk a little bit about NAFTA in this hour. We'll work our way back to some state-level takeaways. Most interestingly, how the traditional powers of the gem state, I think Zach called them the archetypal gentlemen statesmen ranchers, the people that have controlled Idaho politics since Idaho was a state as long as there's been rangeland, aren't just in danger of losing power They might go extinct entirely, just like electable Democrats did a generation ago in Bonner County. It is another wild ride. But before we dive back in, very briefly, if you like Range, if you like hearing two-hour-long deep dives into regional culture and politics, if you like hearing from brilliant, essential voices that often get overlooked in mainstream outlets, you can support our work by becoming a member at rangemedia.co slash subscribe. We keep all of our content free for everyone because we believe a person's ability to pay should have no bearing on their ability to stay informed. But we do rely on those of you who can afford to help us to do so. If that's you, we would really appreciate your support. Once again, it's rangemedia.co slash subscribe. All right, let's get to it. The conclusion to my conversation with the journalist, man of letters, historian, lifelong Idahoan, and a guy who once beat me up a mountain hiking with a cigarette in his mouth the whole way. It was a familiar slope, it was on his home turf, but still, it was a little bit of an ego hit for me. <laughs> Part two of my conversation with Zach Hagadon, editor of the Sandpoint Reader, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 39, still. Living in your own private Idaho. in your own private Idaho.
1: There's this group, you know, the Idaho Freedom Foundation is not elected. Uh, nobody even knows where their money comes from. Uh, they, they they have famously sort of resisted telling people where their money comes from. And here they are sort of dictating not only policy, but who even gets to be on the ballots wow. you know, for, the, for these primaries and who gets to re- retain their seats, you know. And in Idaho, where the Republicans closed the primary in 2012, uh, meaning that you can only vote in the Republican primary if you affiliate as a Republican.
0: Right. So you can't you can't. Jim Woodward's not getting any help from, you know, Democrats in the in the county who well, might just see him as a lesser of two evils.
1: Unless Democrats are registering as Republicans, right. which is something that the Republican Party has deeply resented ever since they closed their primary. And it, I know it happens. It happens all over, all the time. Like, right. There are so many Democrats who are registered as Republicans in Bonner County. And the reason for that is that the only races that matter because of this closed primary are the primaries. Right. I mean the general elections have become foregone conclusions. Whoever wins is Republican primary. That's basically what the general is going to be.
0: All right. So let's call an audible and let's go into the first legislative district. Let's go over there and then we can go back to the statewide stuff and get Janice McGeehan and all the all the, the weirdness happening. Because mm-hmm. what we thought we would do with the first legislative district of Idaho, which again is like the upper half of Bonner County and then all of Boundary County, uh, a good chunk of the, the state north of Coeur d'Alene, Hayden area. So I was noticing that the party affiliation broke, breakdown was really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. 55% Republican, 34% unaffiliated, only 9% Democrat. So is that, is that an accurate reflection of, of the actual uh, ideology, or is that a reflection of people being like, okay, cool, if the only election that matters is the Republican primary, I guess I have to register as a Republican to have my vote matter.
1: That's absolutely a reflection of, uh, of strategic voting. I I guarantee you looking at the kind of partisan breakdown is not going to be accurate to what people actually believe yeah. in any way up here. It's just that people have recognized that if they want to actually have an impact on who's representing them in Boise, they must register as Republicans wow. so they can vote in the primary. Wow. And what that's done, though, is it's insulated these people entirely from their constituents. If they can make it through that primary, then they have nothing to fear from the voters. Yeah. And, and, and the state party, the state party understands this and the Idaho Freedom Foundation understands this and all these other constellation of conservative groups in Idaho understand that the primary is what matters. And because the primary is closed, if you can get that victory, that's who you need to please is the Republican primary voters. And once you're past that, then you don't owe anybody anything other than, you know, sort of the partisan groups that got you there. Which, which is why that the, you know, the actual partisan conflicts in the state devolved down into inter-conservative fighting. Of course. With various stripes of conservatism. Right.
0: Yeah. So the other thing that I found fascinating was that until, literally until, well, as late as 2000, there were Democrats in, in office in this legislative district. Jerry Stoichev looks like he was the last House member. But as recently as 96, it was a Democratic slate. It was entirely Democratic. So what was it just the, that migration of Southern Californian conservatives that that we've heard so much about in Kootenai County that shifted it? Is it are there other dynamics at play here? Like it seems like everything in Iowa has gotten a little bit more conservative since then. But like what's made that shift so stark specifically in, in Boundary and Bonner County?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's a rich there's a rich history of kind of the lunchbox Democrat is what they've been referred to. It's sure. kind of like the, the blue collar natural resource worker unionized. The unions were the key, right? Um, you know, you've got people working in in the forests, you know, in the forest industries, working as miners, working in sort of these industrial and natural resource jobs that were heavily unionized and it enabled those enabled those economic groups to vote, you know, pretty strongly for progressive policies. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, you know, my, my grandparents, my grandparents uh, back in the thirties and forties, like they were staunch Franklin Roosevelt, new dealers. Wow. And everybody was in North Idaho because, you know, the previous sort of, well, I mean the, the depression threw everybody out of work. Uh, and the only way, and the only way that anybody in North Idaho is going to make a living is if they got some support, you know, from, From the government and the new deal was hugely important to the northern counties in idaho Uh, civilian conservation corps uh, you know building up the dams i mean you name it i mean so this this was new deal country this was like frank roosevelt like he he could do no wrong in the northern in the northern counties and that started to change uh you know in the in the 50s and the 60s uh, as you experience you know kind of that white flight that sort of backlash politics to the civil rights movement. I mean, this place has always been racially very homogenous yeah. other than, other than a, a, you know, a Chinese population that, uh, that, that was really kind of building railroads essentially in right. the early, early 20th century, but never became uh, sort of a dominant cultural or political force in right. Northern right. Idaho. So it's always been a, a white monoculture <laughs> in North Idaho. 97.75%
0: white.
1: Yeah. Uh huh. And I think with, you know, sort of Red Scare and and sort of those larger national, those larger national things that were, you know, occurring with the civil rights riots and things like that, people, people started to look at themselves in this area and be like, well, don't we have it great here? Everybody here is good, God-fearing Christians, you know, and nobody's going to be having any race riots here. Nobody's going to be letting any communists come around here to tell us what to do. And then you started to get the transition away from the natural resource economy and then the union busting that occurred just generally right, right. around the country in you know the 70s and 80s. The, de- the decline of the timber industry itself, uh, which occurred in the 80s and 90s, just hollowed out all these traditional job sectors. You know, and, my, and my father was one of them. I mean, he was a mill worker. I think he worked for like at least two, three mills during my childhood. And I mean, a lot of people were doing that, just bouncing from mill to mill, work for a while, that mill would close, go to another one, that mill wow. would close. Yeah. And this was a very dislocating experience <laughs> for
0: people. To say the least, yeah.
1: And and what happened was uh, they were looking for somebody to blame. And around 2000-ish, thereabouts, you know, 99, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly when NAFTA got signed into law, uh, but the North American Free Trade Agreement became kind of the boogeyman yeah. because what it did was it opened the U.S. and, the, and Idaho, you know, being a border state, with Canada, Opened our timber markets to low cost, under market value Canadian
0: uh, timber. Timber, yeah, totally.
1: And so that looked like you know the Democrats and the globalists, you know, are selling us out to you know cheap international trade. We're losing all of our jobs. Nobody can afford to buy any houses anymore. Right. Um, and it, it turned into like hatred of Democrats, hatred of Bill Clinton you know, in particular. I mean, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were more despised in Bonner County and Boundary County. I'm sure in in the nineties than anywhere else in the country. And it had everything to do with NAFTA. And then there were people who sort of saw this as an opportunity to push kind of a John Birch esque ideology of like anti-communism of, um, you know, isolationism, these kinds of things. And it started to attract more like-minded people. And without the natural resource economy, the area had to sort of transition into this tourism uh, sort of amenity Amenity-based economy that starts drawing in older people, retirees uh, who who like that monoculture, who who want to retire in a beautiful, scenic monoculture of placid, in a nice, in a nice
0: safe place. Yeah,
1: exactly. And these, these kinds of euphemisms you you hear even right now, yeah. uh, and, and people who maybe don't even know what they're doing will say things like that, and not realize what they're doing is perpetuating this kind of white supremacist vision of you know. A defensible place, yeah. No <laughs> right. doubt. And yeah. so, I th- I think it was a yeah, I mean, yeah. For lack of a better word, um, so really the transition from kind of that lunchbox Democrat, that sort of like New Deal, uh, you know, Frank Roosevelt, progressivism, yeah. in the forties, morphed through you know economic dislocation uh, and sort of the perpetuation of, of the monoculture in North Idaho into this what we have today, right which is a lot of like-minded sort of extremist conservatives who want to live in a place where they're not being challenged by anything, whether it be, you know, the appearance of other people who don't look like them or ideas that they don't want to hear or you name it.
0: Yeah. So then the district starts getting some Republican lawmakers starting in 96. So four years after NAFTA, kind of exactly like you say. And then mm-hmm. by 2000, once Jerry Stoychef, uh leaves office, it's been reliably Republican for the last 21 years at this point. And then from that sort of homogenous stew, we have these three representatives that we've already started talking about a little bit, Woodward, Sage Dixon, and Heather Scott. So we've already talked about Jim Woodward, the sort of, you know, the more traditional Idaho Republican. What's Sage Dixon's deal?
1: Like I was mentioning, I mean, he, he came to this area from Ohio. And he represents Ponderay, which is sort of an amorphous, community north of Sandpoint. It's where like the Walmart is and the Home Depot. And
0: it's like the Valley of Sandpoint, the Spokane Valley to Spokane. It's Ponderay yeah. to Sandpoint. Yeah, pon- right?
1: I, yeah. I think that's pretty fair. Um, doesn't have a whole lot of people living in it, but it's definitely a commercial hub. Gotcha. Uh, most of I mean, all the big box stores in the immediate Sandpoint area are in Ponderay. Um, there are, I mean, there are people who live there, of course. I mean, there, there is a community of, of people and it, they also live sort of out in the, in the ex-burbs. Rural areas. Yeah. So yeah, right. there's a lot of people with ponderary addresses who live out in the woods, right? They don't live in the actual town. So, so Sage, yeah. Sage Dixon has this kind of strange uh, district, which is, you know, simultaneously very commercially oriented. Um, right. And also very rural and scattered. Uh, he's much more of a, a person of faith. I mean, I think that all three of these people would probably call themselves people of faith, but uh, but, sure. but I think Sage Dixon especially wears his, his faith openly. Um, he tends to take stands on, on stuff on kind of a moral ground. I wouldn't call him a, like a Jerry Falwell type. I mean, he's nothing like that. Um, I think that there, there's definitely some evangelicalism in his belief structure. He has kind of that, Sort of friendly pastor vibe, a little bit, you know. Like okay. when you when you talk to him, he's he's very personable. Um, yeah, he's he's professional. He doesn't tend to go into these rhetorical flights of fancy. Uh, but his votes, you know, are always going to be very hardline conservative, especially on things like abortion, uh, stuff like child health care, things like that. He uh, kind of made his big stand. On the initiatives process in the state, trying to make it harder oh, for initiatives to be passed. That was kind of his baby a few sessions back. He came with a bill that would have uh, kind of increased the, the requirements for getting an initiative on the ballot. It was shot down by the governor at the time. He returned with I think four bills. He basically took his bill, chopped it up into four different things, tried to get that passed through. It didn't work. So that's that's one of his things is like you know rural representation. He thinks that the current initiative process favors the urban centers at the expense of the rural areas that a bill very similar to his actually did make it through this past legislative session, which reclaim Idaho, which is the group that got the Medicaid expansion initiative passed through the state in I think 2018. They are now suing over that, that bill. And this is hilarious. And in a, in a really kind of savvy political trolling maneuver are now going to file an initiative to get the initiatives bill overturned.
0: Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's great. So
1: that's kind of where Sage is. I mean, I I see him as much more of a, uh, of a religious conservative. Uh, He does tend to sort of travel along the same kind of, I wouldn't say anti-government, but uh, government skeptical road (laughs) as Heather Scott. I, I don't know how long, how well they get along. I'm not sure about that, but,
0: Well, and one of the things that strikes me is that like when you talk about conservative political Christians, you know, Christianity is kind of a minority position in America now. Like there's sort of like fewer church going folks than there ever have been and fewer people who sort of vote that way. And so the the move nationally has been to kind of adopt in in important ways, kind of anti-democratic measures to assure the, like the protection of minority rights minority here, meaning like anybody who's like not in the majority. So it strikes me that that initiative process is kind of an anti-majoritarian move, like Mm. trying to restrict the ability to do initiatives is an, you know, we in Washington state, we get annoyed with Tim Iman because he's always trying to get these really you know, hackneyed conservative bills passed that the state legislature doesn't want this is like the the conservative state version of that where it's like something like Medicaid expansion can pass through a ballot initiative because people want it. Yeah. But it would never would have passed the House because it wouldn't have, you know, passed the the conservative sniff test. And so this is a way of sort of further just so people understand or, and, and make sure that I'm, I'm understanding this correctly, like the, the reason to sort of neuter the initiative process is to further concentrate more and more power with the state legislature.
1: Yes, I think that's absolutely what's going on. And furthermore, I would argue that I strongly suspect that there are a lot of lawmakers, including people like Priscilla Giddings and Heather Scott, who would, who would like to see the legislature go full time. They don't say that, and they haven't said that but I know that there are people in Boise who are watching what's going on here and they, you know they, they see 122, 123 day legislative session, which is historically the longest in Idaho's, all of Idaho history. The legislature has never been in session for that long as, as they were this year. And it was dragged out. It was dragged out specifically by certain lawmakers who were trying to use partisan like extreme positions, like the critical race theory thing, trying to use yeah. that as a, as a lever to hold up budgets that they were critical of and that pushed the session into this historic long, uh, this long period. And actually as of right now, uh, June 3rd, uh, the Idaho house is technically not adjourned. They're in a recess. Wow. Wow. And they could, and they can call themselves back anytime until December 31st. Wow. Um, so, so it's I mean, already the real...
0: longest legislative session either ever. And they might be back.
1: Yeah, and they, they probably will be. I don't know why they would have retained that uh, for themselves if they weren't planning to use it. And that characterizes sort of the general thrust of the 2021 legislature was that they were trying to wrest authority away from the governor's office, you know, using this pandemic emergency thing as a as an opportunity to gather more power into the house specifically, um, which it, you know sort of fits in with this whole initiative thing, right? Trying to trying to accumulate more power into the state house itself, into the house in particular, which has always been regarded as more, more conservative in every way.
0: So the, the final legislature in the first is, is Heather Scott. Mm-hmm. What, what animates her? It's mostly like race stuff and guns or what, what is it?
1: Well, definitely guns. As far as race goes with her. Uh, I mean, she poses with a, she posed with a Confederate battle flag, which right. I mean, you say no more. Uh, I mean, anybody who poses with a Confederate battle flag at a campaign event is very clearly signaling their views on on, isu- right. on issues of race. So, you know, you don't have to say much more about that. But she has most definitely leaned into the Second Amendment crowd. Uh, in fact, right. it, you drive around Bonner County, you know, you'll see signs and bumper stickers and stuff uh, with, with Heather Scott. Like, Heather Scott defends my rights or Heather Scott. I'm for Heather Scott, whatever this. Um, yeah. But there's a big old black AR-15 on on the sticker that that's like her campaign art. Yeah. Uh, so she very definitely, I, yeah. So she very definitely identifies herself with the, the second amendment crowd. She's really into the the whole anti-government movement, you know, the militia type yeah. stuff. I mean, I've already mentioned a couple of times, you know, she went down to Malheur and, and you know, rubbed elbows with and Bundy and that whole crowd. Uh, right. she was, she was also very involved with, um, this incident in priest river where, uh, a a veteran was going to have his guns taken away because he was judged to be mentally incapacitated, or basically wasn't safe for him to have these guns anymore due to his mental state. So she descended with a bunch of other folks, uh, including Matt Shea and. You know the Bonner County Sheriff, Darrell Wheeler, who describes himself as a constitutional sheriff. They they went down there to like right. stop the Veterans Administration from taking this man's guns. Made a big hullabaloo out of it. You know, she she referred to Brad Little as Little Hitler during the you know for the lockdown order.
0: Brad Little's the governor of Idaho. For we haven't come to him yet. Yes, though.
1: Brad Little, uh, the uh, the gentleman rancher, the agribusiness Republican, who is very much more in that traditional. Cut of a Idaho Republican. Anyway, uh, she called him uh, Little Hitler for the lockdown order. Uh, she was one of the first to really turn this whole executive power issue into the central issue of the of the 2021 legislature. Tried to con- tried to convene sort of an ad hoc legislative session last August. They didn't have nearly enough people for a quorum. Uh, plus, the legislature can't convene itself without permission from the governor. Um, so they, they they were there completely unofficially. Basically, just to like complain and 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 attack Brad Little over the the beginning stages of the COVID nineteen mitigation efforts. Uh, You know, Ammon Bundy, of course, sort of sort of featured in some of these things. This is where he got arrested, right, for his swivel disobedience thing.
0: (laughs) Right. Seeing a seeing a grown man in cowboy boots being dragged out of the state capitol in handcuffs, but being wheeled on a in a swivel office chair was one of the one of the more salient images of twenty (laughs) twenty one.
1: Well, I, I should correct myself. So they had that fake legislative session. It was Heather Scott and her friends on the House floor. And then they had a real special session that came later. Gotcha. And that's when Ammon Bundy got arrested in his swivel disobedience. Gotcha. Um, swivel so disobedience. That, that's kind of, I mean, so that's Heather Heather Scott's kind of thing is that she's very much in the Patriot movement. You know, the Second yeah. Amendment is, the, is the, the only amendment that really matters kind of group. You, you'll remember that Washington... House of Representatives report that was commissioned a while back, uh, looking into sort of domestic terrorism, focused really heavily on Matt Shea. Um, Heather, Heather Scott popped up in that in that report dozens of times as you know, sort of a lieutenant of Matt Shea in this in this multi-state kind of consortium of extreme right-wing lawmakers. So that's her crowd. Uh, she will only speak to you know the Redoubt News and other like-minded sort of media outlets it's,
0: and, and so yeah like like Shay, she doesn't give uh she doesn't give interviews to the mainstream media quote-unquote mm-hmm. do, do these represent archetypes of sort of contemporary republicanism to you is, is there stuff we've missed like is does this the do, do, and how do the battle lines let's maybe now transition kind of to the state level like is this kind of a, th- a three-way civil war or do, are there coalitions being built or is it sort of less structured than that and more opportunistic? Like how's this working?
1: Uh, so th- there's a book that I think is really instructive for anybody who wants to, to understand this kind of stuff. And it's written by, by um, a retired professor of mine at college of Idaho and Jasper LaCalzi. He was the chair of the uh, political economy department at uh, college of Idaho. And he wrote this mm, book two years ago, or published it two years ago, and it's you know aptly titled "Idaho Politics and Government: Culture Clash and Conflicting Values in the Gem State." And what he does in this book is, and, and literally has a chapter called "What's Wrong with Idaho," right? Which is kind of which is kind of what we're talking about, uh, yeah. is that he tries to reconstruct political subcultures in Idaho, and he uses a framework that he calls petite ideology. So instead of like the big nat- so instead of like the big national ideology of like Republicans and Democrats, you know, conservatives and liberals and you know, that kind of thing, he tries to find like little slices within those definitions, and especially within sort of the Republican conservative side, trying to find different flavors, like you said, yeah. uh, of of conservative theory in Idaho. Um, and in broad strokes, he sort of looks at individualistic conservatives, sort of like the liberty conservatives and the moralistic conservatives. Right which have a more communitarian sort of attitude. And that's kind of the big, the big tent, if you will, individualists versus moralists. Yeah. And if you want to look at it regionally, Idaho has essentially four distinct regions, right? There's North Idaho, there's Southwest Idaho, which, you know, sort of Ada County, the great state of Ada, as they call it, you know, the you know, Boise, Boise being the county seat, um, most populous part of the state, the great state of Ada is, Operates in its own universe. <laughs> right. uh, you've got the the Magic Valley, which is sort of the Twin Falls South Central area. Okay, and if you and if you, I mean, I've been through that area hundreds of times, and I have yet to find the magic. But it um, <laughs> it's it is it is like desert blasted wasteland in many <laughs> many places. I mean, and you're talking like roadrunner and Wiley coyote. I mean this is like the border of Nevada and Utah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, but, but very deeply ingrained with agricultural like big agribusiness stuff like that. Gotcha. Um, and then eastern Idaho, which is, you know, Idaho Falls, Pocatello, and that might as well be northern Utah, which is what it's referred right.
0: to. Uh, That's where Arab like BYU Idaho is too, right in Rexburg.
1: Yeah, and sort of the some of the most influential sort of Mormon institutions are over there. And the Mormon influence does, you know, kind of bleed from, from Idaho Falls, Pocatello, that eastern Idaho area, across the southern part of the state. It doesn't quite penetrate to the north. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of Mormon influence, you know, north of, say, McCall. Um, but anyway, so you, you've got these four areas, and Lacalzee in his book will sort of try to apply this, this rubric, right, uh, the individualistic versus the moralistic to each region. And broadly speaking, he'll say, like, North Idaho is the individualistic, most individualistic part of Got the state. Okay. This, is, this is where sort of the, uh, the Jeffersonian types will live, right? Right. You know, less government, the best. You know, get out of my face. Leave me be. That kind of thing. Yeah. You go down to southwest Idaho, so Boise area, it's it's moralism. So it's more like a Hamiltonian kind of community, yeah. good, but, you know, tinged a little bit less with individualism. I mean, that's there for sure. The Magic Valley is almost the reverse of Boise. Okay. So more individualistic, but still there's some some moralism, and then Eastern Idaho would be kind of the most moralistic right. part of the state. Right. And a lot of that, of course, comes from the church being a community. So a, right. a, you know, a faith community sort of automatically creates this situation where people are more community minded, right? Especially, especially if they're all in the same church, right? Which,
0: <laughs> right. Well, that's the thing that's important. It's like that, that sort of moralism, at least in my experience. And so correct me if you, or if this doesn't really match up with what you're saying. It's like that communitarianism is very, very strong in, in the evangelical tradition I grew up in, but it was, it was communitarianism for the in-group. So I was like, if, as long as you were part yeah. of the church, they would take care of you till the day you died. If you weren't in the church, yeah. they didn't give a shit about you.
1: Yeah. Well, and I I should note that when I'm, when I'm saying moralism and like morality, I'm not talking about like moral goodness, this is like, but
0: it is, it's the very specific interpretation they have, but, but it is like, it's, it's one of the more, you know, interesting and nuanced things that I I don't think get talked about. This is slightly tangential. It's like, there is very, very strong community cohesion in, in Christian communities like that. And then maybe typified by the Mormons around here. So as long as you're part of the in group, there is a communitarian strain of, mm-hmm. you know, we, we need to take care of each other. Like, and that's, that sort of gets glossed over in the sort of, certainly in the national gloss around what makes a good, you know, hashtag Republican. Uh, and I just wanted to underscore that because it, it does seem like it's it's a missed piece of the analysis too often, I think.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that's that's something that, you know, Lacalzee keys in on as well, is that um, it is sort of the in-group politics that enable that community notion and the, and the most successful politicians in Idaho history anyway, have sort of blended these two things, um, you know, in, in a relative balance. Yeah. And he would refer to them as sort of Wilsonians. Okay. Right? And you look at people like Cecil Andrus, who was a Democrat. Yeah. You know, often regarded as the greatest governor in Idaho history. He's a Democrat. Phil bat Republican also sort of regarded as one of the best Idaho governors of all time. Andrus and bat are buddies, right? I mean, yeah. This is sort of the sweet spot, right, that Lacalze would talk about. Like, in Idaho politics is you take this individualistic, this moralistic thing, you get this Jeffersonian, this Hamiltonian idea, and you blend it together and become a Wilsonian, and then you're effectively governing from the center, such as you can have a center in a state that has four distinct geographic regions with wildly different um, geographies. I mean, up here in North Idaho, I mean, this is like, Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, we yeah. got forests, we got lakes, we got rain. You go down to Boise, it's high desert, like this sagebrush. I have literally seen sagebrush blowing down the street in front of my house when I lived in Boise. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, Magic Valley, like I said, I mean, it's like blasted that hellscape,
0: yeah,
1: nice <laughs> desert. <laughs> and then eastern Idaho, well, in eastern Idaho has you know nice big rivers, you know plains, and then it of course just flows right into Yellowstone for God's sake. Yeah. So I mean, we're talking about an enormous geographic variety. With very different local customs and you know, religious affiliations and all these kinds of things, so to be a Wilsonian is very difficult in this kind of environment. I would say that Jim Woodward, if you're going to try to turn these guys into avatars, you know of yeah. uh, of the sort of political orientations in the state. Uh, Jim Woodward, I think, does a better job than almost anybody of fitting into that Wilsonian sort of middle ground. Yeah, which is which is of course why the Bunner County Republican Central Committee yeah. hates him. Uh, Heather Scott clearly would be, you know, one of these like firebrand individualists sort of Jeffersonian politicians yeah. Yeah. in the, in the, in the yeah. book, he specifically comes out and says, you know, the Idaho freedom foundation is the most Jeffersonian group in the state. And he doesn't talk about Heather Scott specifically, but I feel like his analysis would probably hold for her as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, so you've got that strain, like the, the almost, it's so individualistic, it's almost totalitarian,
0: Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like the horseshoe is bent so far that it's almost meeting itself. Yeah. Uh, and then Sage Dixon, I think, uh, feeds more into that sort of petite ideology of the moralistic type. Gotcha. Um, he's got, he's got a definitely a strong individualistic strain uh, to what he talks about in his stance toward, you know, government overreach and the initiative process and things like that. Um, but he definitely carries with him more of that sort of communitarian, like, but only for the in-group, right? Right, right, as you were saying. So,
0: and it would make sense in the area of the state that's probably the most individualistic, you couldn't maybe get a pure moralist in that sense, but you could get, you know, like the. it would make sense that even a moralist would have to have a little bit of individualism baked into the cake, but still he sort of represents that pole of the, the petite ideology.
1: The, the Bunner County Republican Central Committee is clearly very enmeshed in sort of the the Freedom Foundation, Jeffersonian, whatever you want to call it, individualistic strain. And they can't abide that sort of middle ground because it threatens to undercut their hold on the imaginations of these extreme far-right conservative voters. If they start seeing somebody who's able to sort of effectively govern from the middle, or at least somewhere close to the middle, then then what need do we have of our you know my hair's on fire like redout news they're coming for my guns yeah uh, kind of rhetoric right and that that's, that stuff is so attractive i mean it's it's like political crack I mean, yeah. you you start <laughs> you start you see start, start peddling these things about conspiracies of so, of socialists invading the library and right. the government coming for my guns and BLM's going to sneak in here and burn down downtown Sandpoint. yeah like that's that stuff is just gold you know for a certain type <laughs> of voter And if all you got to do is get through the primary, then, you know, who cares about ideas?
0: So we've got Janice McGeehan, who we've already talked about first term lieutenant governor. We've learned pretty recently that she has designs already on becoming governor, which is pretty uncommon nationally, but also in Idaho. Apparently, it's like there's a dues paying period where people generally go to Congress for a while or they just, you know, spend some time as lieutenant governor before they try to make a run at the governorship. She's not doing any of that she created an anti indoctrination task force, which is kind of connected to, but not the same as all the stuff that's happening up at North Idaho college to protect our, to quote, protect our young people from the scourge of critical race theory, socialism, communism, and Marxism, which also kind of ties into this library stuff we've been talking about. Priscilla Giddings, the woman, a 10 warthog pilot who likes to dock rape victims is the co-chair of that task force. Uh, the McGeean Giddings caucus. So let's go through this, held up the state budget process. The reason this was a 120-plus day legislative session, the longest in state history, is that they refused to move the budget along until everybody agreed, and Brad Little, the governor who was against it, signed into law a bill outlawing the teaching of quote critical race theory in any public school, even colleges. McGeehan said her constituents believe critical race theory is one of the biggest threats facing America today. Uzak told me the other day, you don't think anybody had ever heard of critical race theory before McGeehan decided to outlaw it. So what the hell is happening there discreetly, but then how does that tie into the bigger picture?
1: So I think this critical race theory flap is really manufactured, you know, from what I can tell, I, I've been a student of history for my whole life. And you know, I even did a stint in grad school, getting my master's in American history from WSU. And that was as recent as 2017, and 2019. And I never one time in my life until this became an issue with the legislature even heard the phrase critical race theory. Now, having, having read about it more and gotten to understand a little bit better what, it, what it's actually all about, uh, I mean, I, I can see that things that I have learned and things that I have been, and that I have taught have touched on elements of critical race theory,
0: sure.
1: but the idea that this is some kind of like monolithic,
0: doctrinaire, and you know, dogmatic, yeah,
1: yeah, is just absurd. Um, they keep trying to characterize this as if there's some you know like 500 page tome somewhere um, that is you know has the words critical race theory printed on the front, and they're just going to drop it on right schools, right. and that just doesn't exist. And it's telling to me. I mean, you mentioned his uh, indoctrination task force. Uh, it's telling to me that they met last Thursday for five hours, and the bulk of what they talked about, from what I have read in you know, the reports, was trying to even define critical race theory. So even they don't know what this is.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> I know it when and I see it. And so, I know I don't
0: like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, know like, it well, it's like the old
1: por- it's like the old pornography thing, right? It's like I don't know what's pornography, but I know what I know it when I see it, right?
0: Yeah,
1: and. Priscilla Giddings, I mean, I think she's probably done the best job of articulating exactly what it is that um, you know, Idaho extreme conservatives find so unsettling about critical race theory. Yeah. When she when she said the quiet part right out loud, right? She's like, this is an attempt to make white students feel guilty about being white and to hate America yeah. and, to, and to believe that, that America is fundamentally white supremacist. That's what they're worried about. I mean, it has nothing to do with the actual academic practice of critical race theory, which, you know, is is an analysis of the of the systemic racial disparities that are embedded in American jurisprudence, right. um, going back all the way to you know before the founding of the country, right? right. And, and there's nothing suspect whatsoever about that kind of critical analysis. It, it's just recognizing a historical fact and then investigating it. Now, people can reach their own conclusions based on whatever sort of academic framework they're going to use and their own academic toolbox. Yeah. But the the idea of outlawing a form of analysis simply because you don't want to have the potential for people to have a certain type of conversation is just about the most draconian thing I can imagine. And I also find it very suspicious that there are simultaneous efforts, you know, along with whatever this has gone on in Idaho um, that there are simultaneously other bills attacking this exact same thing popping up in States all over the country. To my mind, you know, that looks very much like a concerted sort of nationally directed effort by yeah. some group or groups flooding legislatures with model bills on this one subject. And I don't know this for sure, but when I see the Idaho Freedom Foundation making this one of its signature issues, right. I mean, they're the ones, they're the ones who started beating this drum before anybody, um, specifically targeted at Boise State University, right. saying that they were indoctrinating students with all this. Meanwhile, an investi- an independent investigation from Holly Troxell Law Firm Boise Uh, That went on for months. Found absolutely no evidence that any Boise State University student was ever made to feel guilty because they were white,
0: and no indoctrination occurred. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Meanwhile, but then IFF issues this release saying, like, well, that's like saying you're going to believe, you know, a criminal as his own judge. Yeah. So they're just refusing to believe it. Right. Whatever. But given that they have ties to these uh, these big national organizations that are known to front model legislation on yeah. extreme right wing issues it just seems very convenient to me yeah. that all of a sudden critical race theory is you know the, the greatest threat to the american way <laughs> and then it's a threat all over the country.
0: Totally. And while it's like bubbling up in the legislatures now, it's like, I do think that that's like the red meat that everybody from like Tucker Carlson to campus reform has been banging on about this for a really long time. Maybe even pre, mm-hmm. probably even predating Trump in the campus reform case it is that sort of like that echo chamber, there are national echo chambers and clearly seemingly uh, local ones as well, sort of banging on around about these esoteric things That suddenly when they bubble to the surface can seem kind of shocking. But when I was thinking about this stuff, I'm like, oh, wait, I've been hearing about not even, you know, critical race, an undefined boogeyman similar to critical race theory. It hasn't always been called critical race theory, but it has been around Mm -hmm. like campus indoctrination has been a big right wing talking point for probably the better part of a decade. And so it's interesting that there's clearly like a local flavor to this, but it is a, it's, it's a part of a mm-hmm. national trend and maybe they're just trying to ride a national wave. So is it like a Trumpian wave, do you think? Or is it?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, looking at some of these laws around the country, proposed laws related to critical race theory, I mean, they, they use, in some cases, verbatim language out of an executive order that Donald Trump was you know throwing around about right. critical race theory. So clearly there's a direct connection I mean, do I, do I think that Idahoans have been sitting around, you know, like wringing their hands over critical race theory Yeah. and, you know, people like Giddings and McGeehan are like responding to their existential dread? No, no, I, yeah. no, I, do, I do not. I, th- I think it's a straw man uh, that's being trotted out to inspire, you know, a politically advantageous terror among a certain strata of conservatives who are looking at movements like Black Lives Matter specifically yeah. uh, as posing a direct threat to what they see as, you know, the stability of the nation. Right. but it's really there is really their anxiety over the precariousness of white supremacy
0: yeah
1: um in, in the face of you know a growing recognition of systemic racism which has been a long time coming and, and i think what some of these people are rightly recognizing is that history is coming for them so right. this is a this is a bit of a rearguard action i think yeah um, that, that's being expressed through this you know really bizarre way i mean critical race theory what, what, what a strange lever to try to use. But, I mean, it, it's it's clearly moving things. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. were able to hold up the education budget in Idaho and then basically blackmail the governor into signing it into law and blackmailing the Senate in, into passing this. Um, and there were a lot of Republican lawmakers in the Statehouse who said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I have to vote for this because we have to, constitutionally are required to pass an education budget yeah. and have a balanced budget. So they've got us by, you know, the short hairs and we're going to have to go along with them, even though this is totally odious, ridiculous bill. Um, it's not the job of the legislature to be, um, you know, outlawing future curricular choices at schools.
0: I mean, yeah. Is, is it fair to say that you know, the, the, the critical race theory bill only passed? So it's like it wasn't even popular among Republicans. It only passed because of this sort of. Basically, a coalition large enough to prevent passage of the larger budget was able to form and demand that they pass this bill in order to move the budget forward. Is that how it worked?
1: Yeah, they straight up held the education budget hostage over it. There was a a chunk of money from the federal government that was supposed to fund an early childhood education piece in the larger education budget and Heather Scott, in particular, and also Priscilla Giddings, made just mountains of hay over <laughs> the idea that over this over the idea that this that this piece of federal funding was going to be the sort of backdoor uh, through which critical race theory was going to infiltrate elementary schools.
0: So, yeah, your uh, your your toddler in pre-K is going to be told that they're bad because they're white uh, unless we hold up. Wow, unless we pass this bill, yeah.
1: Uh huh. And they got enough people to sort of get on this bandwagon, despite the fact that they had no evidence for this. Yeah. Despite the fact that no evidence has ever been produced by anyone that any of these, you know, supposed books or lesson plans or idea or any of this stuff has ever been or ever been considered or even ever will be considered uh, for Idaho schools. They have no evidence for this. Heather Scott sent out a constituent email blast, you know, to to everybody and had a bunch of books on it that she allegedly were going to be used under this federal program. But even in her own newsletter, had to admit that, well, you know, the link to this is gone now, you know, suspiciously. Uh, And... Yeah, I was just like, okay. <laughs> it's like she couldn't even she couldn't even provide sources for her own allegation that these were like these radical left wing books were going to be used. She couldn't even provide that.
0: Yeah, jeez.
1: And and they were just, I mean, sure these books exist, but there's no indication that they're going to be used in Idaho schools. And, it, and either she's completely ignorant of how curriculums are developed or curricula are developed, or she's you know, willfully lying. Uh, but you don't just like plug and play a curriculum like they have to be built in a public process by, you know, school boards, by superintendents, by teachers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally. so, yeah. There's a whole consensus process. And yeah, totally. So we mentioned that Giddings is going to run for Lieutenant governor, which would be kind of messy. She's really close political allies with the current Lieutenant governor McGeehan, except mm-hmm. that McGeehan decided to f- run for governor before her first term of Lieutenant governor is even out going against the, incumbent Brad Little. So we've talked about I'm going to I'm going to kind of condense a couple questions here cuz we're getting close to time, but I do want to talk about this and then and then I'll let you go. But you called him a general the current governor Brad Little, a gentleman rancher, a kind of a prototypical do, do you consider him a Wilsonian maybe? But he's just like a kind of a normal Idaho Republican in the in the mold that we've talked about seemingly. She runs decides to file to for run to run for governor against him and then In one of the more hilarious, I got to give it to her, just like amazing political stunts, he leaves the state to go to a governor's conference. So technically the power of the state falls to her because he's no longer in the state. And McGeehan issues an executive order banning mask mandates that was only ever going to last for one day because Little was going to be back in state the next day. So she was banning mask mandates. There wasn't even a mask mandate she was just issued an executive order banning them. Little comes back, calls her actions tyranny, which is hilarious. I get a sense that maybe through this campaign, there's going to be different uh, definitions of tyranny being hurled back and forth between these various contending classes. That story makes it in the New York Times. And, and it would be sort of easy to write it off as a campaign stunt and like just kind of a hilarious, dumb joke, except it costs kind of a shitload of turmoil close to home at Lake City High School, where there actually was a a discreet mask mandate in place just at that school because there was a really bad COVID outbreak. And, And apparently students ended up just like doing the right thing and everybody wore masks anyways on the day that there was a ban on mask mandate, on the mask mandates. But it's easy to sort of at the top level get caught up in the ridiculousness or the hilarity or the absurdity or you know just the political theater. But this does affect real people in real ways in, in tangible ways uh-huh. and potentially destructive ways. So what do you think any of, in all of this, and we haven't even talked about Ammon Bundy, the guy that who's like family bonding is literally having armed standoffs with federal agents all over the West. He is also <laughs> now running for governor. So maybe let's, let's throw him in here too. You know, the swivel disobedience guy who moved from Eastern Oregon into Idaho to sort of be a player in Idaho politics. What does this mean for the election cycle? Do you have any sense of what's going to happen?
1: I think this election cycle is going to be wild. Uh, I, I think back to the 2014 gubernatorial election, which was, you know, just bonkers. And if anybody's forgotten about Harley Brown and Walt Bays, who ran against, uh, you know, Governor Otter, Butch Otter and Russ Fulcher, who was trying to, to unseat him. I encourage you to look it up on YouTube and see the debate uh, in 2014 between these guys. Um, Harley Brown being the trucker, or a biker guy wearing like leathers okay. on the stage, and Walt Bays with a gigantic like Walt Whitman beard, like railing on about abortion, it was, it was crazy. So this this I think is gonna be a similarly um, meme worthy, just bizarre uh, election cycle. Yeah, It's got a crowded field, right? Um, you know, little has said he's maybe probably running for another term. So oh, he, had, he yeah, I don't yeah, know he's, why he's, okay. he's being very coy about it. Yeah. Um, he's had a couple of interviews with various news outlets down in Southern Idaho and, and he always just kind of, you know, winks and nods, you know, saying like, well, of course we're thinking about it. And right. yada, yada. I mean, is it, if I was in Tibet, I would say that he's going to run again. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, he's running as that kind of rational mind, the store type chief executive guy, like. Yeah. Sort of the boardroom cowboy kind of thing, which is has always worked in Idaho. Uh, and then you got McGeehan, of course, who who's trying to flog whatever threat de jour she can uh, into office. Uh, I mean, McGeehan's got the star power, right? She's she's right. the wild and crazy. You know, I mean, there, there's a video out there that she made with a bunch of other hard right conservative lawmakers, uh, including Heather Scott, where she appears in the video sitting in some kind of like military grade looking truck. <laughs> And she's talking about, you know, Idaho freedom and all this. And then she literally pulls out a Bible and a handgun and like brandishes it, you know, in front of the camera. So, I mean, that's McGeean. Like, she's going to pull more headlines than anybody in this race. Brad Little in any other environment, political environment, would be almost entirely assured of a victory just because the you know the powers that be like him, because he is part of the powers that be and has been for a very long time. But but that sort of insurgent um, wing of the party, I think, is a lot more powerful than a lot of people want to give credit for. As far as Ammon Bundy goes, uh, I mean, I keep hearing conflicted stuff about whether or not he actually is running. I heard one report where he tried to file the paperwork to do so, but it turned out that he wasn't registered as a voter. Sweet. So that was a problem. Uh, he's, I mean, that guy...
0: Well, and he's currently literally banned from the state house because of all of this. Quote, let's let's well, g- generously call it civil disobedience, but basically just disruption and and grandstanding. He can't even well, go he in the state house. Arrested. He's running for.
1: Everywhere he goes, he gets arrested, and he, he does it on purpose. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. His bumper crop is, is headlines. That's that's yeah. that's what he ranches. Right. So <laughs> I, I don't I don't think he's all that. I think McGeon sucks the air out of whatever Ram Bundy might do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's really little in, in McGeon. So uh, what I'm also interested in, I guess, for the first time ever, is lieutenant governor's race. And in Idaho, we don't run governors and lieutenant governors on a ticket, right? They're totally separate. And, and in this one, you know, we have Priscilla Giddings, you know, the Minnie McGean,
0: Right.
1: Scott Bedkey, the House, house Speaker. Um, and then we have this other candidate named Luke Malick. Luke Malick. And Malik I find particularly compelling. Okay. And so I've known Luke since we were both students at the College of Idaho uh, going on 20 years ago. He was a year behind me in undergraduate school, uh, very active in Republican politics then, you know, as a student. But also I, I'm compelled by him because of what he represents in the Idaho GOP.
0: Hmm.
1: So he was one of the youngest legislators in the state house. He served three terms from 2012 to 2018 in the house, uh, representing district four in the seat A, gotcha. which is basically like Coeur d'Alene. So, you yeah. n- an an important district and an important seat. Uh, He's a lawyer. uh, He's got a a lot of interest in healthcare. He's worked in the healthcare field, you know, from, from the legal side. He tried and failed to win the congressional seat. It's held by Russ Fulcher right now. And he just generally represents a more kind of aspirational rather than eliminationist vision of republicanism. Interesting that is, is kind of that Wilsonian thing, right? That we, we were talking about. It makes room for compromise and listens to a variety of perspectives. Still conservative, sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's but it's not like the scorched earth conservatism yeah, <laughs> that, right. that that, that represented by like Giddings and, and McGeehan. Uh, he's well-liked by all the people you traditionally want to be liked by in Idaho politics. And he's got the big business lobbies. He's got the grand old statesmen and stateswomen of the state. Uh, he's got the natural resource folks. He's got firefighters, yeah. stuff like that. Um, I don't know if I'd call him an institutional candidate, not like Bedke. Right. I mean, Bedke is a, I mean, he's, he's institutional to the core. Yeah. Um, but Luke, Luke does have a lot of, he has experience in the state house. He understands how it works. He's got friends there still. He has his own mind though. Right. And he isn't afraid to, to speak it. He's had big run-ins with the Idaho Freedom Foundation. And, uh, you know, Brent Reagan, who's sort of the, the godfather of the Kootenai County Republican Central Committee, yeah, sort of the, the kingmaker, you know. And Reagan, of course, also sits on the board of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, so there's a little bit of, you know, crossover here. Yeah, right. Uh, but but neither of those, you know, IFF and Brent Reagan are not fans of Luke Malik. They absolutely despise him. Interesting. Uh, they've, got, they, they've been in very public, you know, sort of wars of words and editorials and whatnot up in the Coeur d'Alene Press and, Going back, you know, to even when he was in the state house. So Luke is definitely the kind of politician uh, who I would see meshing well with Little.
0: Interesting. I think. Yeah.
1: Maybe even more so than Bedke. I feel like Bedke might might have his eye on Little's job
0: one day. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, and I'm, and I'm sure Luke does too. But that's probably far enough in the future that it doesn't feel like it's much of a threat. You know, immediately. Little, yeah. Yeah, it's a little. So we might see um, a
0: situation where you think like it's like a little Malik, not really a ticket because tickets don't really work that way. But they're they're sort of like trying to work together, kind of like the way that Warnock and Ossoff did in the in the the runoff election in the Georgia Senate race, where it was like, hey, we're kind of a package deal. We're going to help each other out. We're going to campaign. You kind of get both of us, or you know, uh, or you get you know more Republican control of the national legislature. There could be something here where it's like, we know that McGeehan and uh, Giddings are kind of a package deal and they're going to be supporting each other throughout this. So it would make sense for Little, if he's going to run again, to, to look for somebody like Malik to sort of be the counterpunch.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and also kind of to sort of bring under the wing, right? Yeah. I mean, S- Scott, Bet- Scott Bedke is not going to crawl under Brad Little's wing. Okay. Bed, Bedke has got his own wings, right? He doesn't yeah, <laughs> he doesn't yeah, want to be somebody's understudy. Gotcha. Uh, I mean Butch Otter the Butch Otter who used to be Brad Little's boss. I mean he was the governor before Brad Little. He, um, he's endorsed Bedke. Oh,
0: interesting. Um, already. Yeah. Okay.
1: So I, I I don't know. I mean I could see them probably having a collegial relationship. Yeah. You know to a degree, but but Bedke's I mean he's he's supported some of this stuff, saying that you know Brad Little overstepped his bounds with the emergency orders around COVID and all this kind of, I think Luke Luke would be a, a a very welcome face. I think for a lot of more mainline Republicans, a young person, a person who's not a ideologue, who's not a fire breather, you know, who's solutions oriented, who's gone toe to toe with the Idaho Freedom Foundation and those kinds of groups, and who's not afraid of them. Honestly, that's the other thing. I mean, yeah. I, I referred to that, that statement from Chuck Winder not long, you know, earlier in when we were our conversation. Where Winder was saying, "Oh, the IFF is the biggest threat to democracy yeah, in yeah. Idaho," and I think there's a lot, a lot of people who feel that way, increasingly, on the Republican side. And Luke would definitely be their their candidate. But I can't I, I can't wait to see him debate Giddings.
0: Yeah, totally. So then maybe the um what what I was sort of saying about the governor's race might apply here too, where it's like you know, Bed key got is trying to sort of negotiate this really narrow terrain between trying to both. Have some institutional support in the form of like the former governor Butch Otter, but also sort of trying to cozy up to the sort of more you know anti-vax extreme right groups that are represented by Giddings, and that's just a that's a pretty narrow tightrope to have to walk. Yeah, I don't
1: I don't see much room in that channel. I honestly don't see any path forward for Bedke unless unless the powers of you know sort of the big lobbies and the institutional Boise superstructure really is that strong still and decides to go in his favor, he might. I mean, his whole thing right now is just talking about how he has the experience He's got the, you know, the leadership ability. Blah blah blah. You know, Giddings is comes from nowhere. He's trying to make Luke sound like he's some punk kid. You know, right. even though Luke served three terms in the House and you know, ran for Congress. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's just a little bit of disingenuousness there, and it's a you little know, patronizing, of course. Yeah. But that's kind of that's kind of what these old legislative dogs do, right? I mean, these yeah. old.
0: So you got to get to uh you got to get to a, a violent appointment I've already kept you. This is going to be the longest episode of Range ever to date, which is actually probably fitting because it's this is this should have happened already. So we've kind of done our omnibus Idaho episode and we've maybe reached a uh, an analysis that we'll see how and I'll have you back on as the as the uh, campaign kicks up to maybe see how right we were, but it seems like at least in this in this governor's race, it may be it will governor or lieutenant governor like little and Malik versus McGeehan and Giddings.
1: I mean, honestly, that's the race. The Lieutenant Governor's race is the one that I'm more interested in, to be honest, which that's is right. bizarre.
0: Okay.
1: I think I am pretty confident that the power of incumbency and, and just and just the mood of the Idaho GOP uh, establishment is going to make sure that Giddings, or McGeehan doesn't win. Okay. I mean, Brad, I think Brad Little will win another term. The Lieutenant Governor's race, however, I think is much more up in the air and I feel like that's as much of a bellwether, uh, you know, for the next couple of years in Idaho politics as anything. I and mean, in fact, might be the best bellwether for how okay. the next, and uh, that, that's my prediction that I will follow up on if you were, ever want to have me back on here.
0: Okay. So we, we are saying that after this whirlwind tour of the gem state, it is the stated belief of range as a publication based on the opinion of our resident expert, Zach Hagadon, that the Lieutenant Governor's race of Idaho is going to be a bellwether for the direction the state is moving for what the next half decade?
1: Yes, definitely. Awesome. And most certainly, most certainly for the next two legislative sessions.
0: All right, Zach. Thanks so much, man. It's always so much fun to hang out.
1: I very much enjoyed this. Thank you. We'll do it again soon. All righty. All
0: right, man. Take care. Take care. I love that guy. That's it for us this week. Thanks again to Zach for giving so generously of his time and insight. Connor Bacon edited this interview. Tweezung Zung contributed research and writing support. I want to thank them for the help and thank all of you for listening. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.